0: got very good arms. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Well, good morning, guys. Let's go Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important things, but chief among those things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, that puts you at a disadvantage, right? And so we can fix that. Bible apps are great. I love Bible apps. I use one every day. I I use several for studying purposes, more scholarly level stuff. But man, there's just something that God does with his physical word sitting in your hands. And so um, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we can fix that today by sending you home with a paperback Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. So if you're new here, we shut down our big long uh, series that we've been working on uh, for several months and we'll be working on for a year plus. Uh, we shut it down for the summer. Uh, new England's just kind of this weird beast where people kind of scatter and they've got all these different things going on. And and so we said, hey, hey, let's lean into that. Let's do something short and fun and just have a good time with it. And so uh, we kicked off a little series back at the beginning of July that's, uh, that's called I Don't Think That Means What You Think That Means. Um, and so here's the deal I, I don't know of anybody who really hates the movie The Princess Bride like you may have a neutral opinion about it you may not think about it at all but no one really hates it you either love it or you just don't care right? and so The Princess Bride is just this Fun, relaxing movie, su- full of super memorable lines that you can quote from these really funny characters. And and just there's this one line for me that rises to the top of the pile. Inigo Montoya, the Spanish Avenger, who his father has been killed. He wants to go settle the score, and so he's pursuing the guy who's responsible. And he gets kind of wrapped up with these other people. And, and one of them is a guy named uh, is a guy who who uses this word inconceivable, incorrectly, over and over and over again. It doesn't mean the way, it, it, the actual definition of the word is not the way he's using it. And so Inigo, he finally gets annoyed enough that he calls it out, right? He says, you keep using that word, but, but I don't think that means what you think that means. Now, if, if you love the movie, if you're a fan of the movie, you might have a different favorite line. Uh, for some of you, it's maybe a conversation between Wesley and Buttercup as they enter the fire swamp. Buttercup says, we'll never survive. And what does Wesley say? Nonsense. You're only saying that because no one ever has, right? For others, it's Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal. Um, Wesley's on the table. They, they think he's dead. They're hoping that he, they, he can be of use. And they bring him to Miracle Max to try to get something out of him. And he's like, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. The Princess Bride is just this really good movie full of really memorable stuff. And, it's, and I think it's hard not to like. Uh, obviously, you're allowed to like any line that you want from the movie. You can pick your favorite. But my line is my favorite line on purpose. I, I usually pick things on purpose in my life for, for specific reasons. And it just so happens that it's because I find myself thinking this exact thought more often than I'd like to admit to all right uh, th- uh, um, I, I, I don't think that means what you think that means and I had somebody confess to me this morning that they said it the, uh, this week and it, they laughed because the person they were talking to didn't know what they were anyways it was bad all right so I'm sure you've been in situations like that just like um Terry <laughs> Terry all right so I'm sure you've been in situations like that, where you're, you've had this thing and people keep abusing it, misusing it, misquoting it, misapplying it, misrepresenting it, whatever. Whatever happens, uh, this thing, they take this thing and it gets used in a way that it was never meant to be used, right? And there are all kinds of things that we do this to in our culture. Misconceptions are all over the place. And so... Excuse me. So for the last several weeks, we've been sharing some of the most common ones, or at least the ones that come up on Google the fastest. And so I got some more for you this morning. You ready for them? Number one, despite the fact that we use them to talk about people who fail to address the problems in front of them, ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand to hide from danger. Isn't that the myth, though? They stick their head in the sand. Something scary is coming along, all right? and they duck their head in the sand and act like it's not there. And that's the myth. In fact, that myth is so common that when we talk about it, we don't even mention the ostrich, right? If we want to accuse somebody of avoiding the hard thing, we just say that they buried their head in the sand, right? And we assume that the ostrich is a part of the equation. It's become so ingrained in our culture. It's a common trope when something is scary and coming along and then we don't want to deal with it. But the reality is that ostriches are the scary thing. Think about this for a second. They're an eight-foot-tall bird, weighing somewhere between two and 300 pounds, and they can run 40 miles an hour. You want to size yourself up against an ostrich? It's not going to go well for you. They can come at you with their size. They can come at you with their beak, which, by the way, looks scary as all get out, but they prefer to kick their targets like a horse. Their their knees, if you notice, bend backwards, and so they kick you from the front. So they're looking at you as they do it. And if they manage to square you up, you may just die from the experience. A big old bird that can run 40 miles an hour, if he wants to just square you up and go after it, you're not running away. You need something between you and the ostrich. So, ostriches aren't scared of people. People ought to be scared of ostriches. So, what's with the buried the head thing then? Well, they, it's hot where they live, and they dig holes and bury their eggs. And because they're good parents, they've got to stick their head in the hole every once in a while and turn the eggs over. And it just so happens that somebody caught them doing it one time, they're like, hey, that looks nice, right? That's what's going on. Ostriches are not scared of you. You should be scared of the ostrich. Capiche? All right, number two. Despite the fact that this is on pretty much every cop TV show that's ever been made, you don't have to wait 24 hours to file a missing person report, right? Whether you're watching CSI or NYPD Blue or whatever your show is, that's the trope that gets, get, keeps getting thrown out, right? It's, it's a plot narrative that just for some reason keeps getting repeated. It's on like 400 episodes of Law and Order, right? And there's like a 1,000, so it, it's, it's like 40%. But if you have a legitimate reason to believe that someone is in danger, you should not, nor are you required to wait 24 hours. You should totally just call the police, right? There's no police office in the country that says, now slow down, we need to wait a wait today." They say, okay, we'll get to work. CSI, Law and Order, NYPD Blue, they're all wrong. NCIS, though, is a different story. They'll never do anything wrong because they're perfect. I love Gibbs. He and I are best friends. All right, number three. I can give you one from church history. Despite the fact that for the last 20 years or so it has been the most common quote from young adults in the church leaning towards what we would call theological liberalism saint francis of assisi never ever 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 said preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words at all you if you if you've never come across this quote before um then you've never spent a lot of time on a christian college campus i have it's everywhere this line is uh, quoted so often on the fringes of church life that you think it, it came from the Bible itself. Um, and there are some who really want it to be true, especially those who, who have an opinion of the church that the church is real insular and that the church should be more outward focused. And, and so I kind of get it. It kind of makes sense that, that somebody would call the church to, to say, okay, stop just talking about the gospel, illustrate the gospel, right? Like that's an important thing. I get that. The only problem is, is that there is zero record of Francis of Assisi ever saying anything close to that. Francis was a Catholic monk in the early 13th century. He's the founder of the Franciscan order. All right? So, as you can probably guess, he's a big deal in the Catholic world. Um, we're told that he was very fond of animals and the outdoors, and so that's why you typically see him depicted with animals and other like birds and stuff all over him. Like If you ever see a picture of Francis of Assisi, he's got animals around. All right? He's the patron saint of ecology, which I didn't know was a thing, but there's a thing, all right? Um, he would ride. Uh, he also, though, spent most of his career, the majority of his career, as an itinerant preacher. He would ride from town to town to town, as many as five churches a day, and preach the gospel with words. <laughs> he, he didn't pantomime it. He spoke it, right? So the idea that Francis would preach the gospel without words at the very least goes against the practice of his life. But it also, also goes against what the gospel actually is, right? The gospel as a word literally means good news. And news is half the equation, right? You can't have news without telling someone the news. Otherwise, it's just something that happened. Having deeds that match a gospel changed heart is not only a good thing, but I would even argue a necessary thing. But eventually, eventually somebody's lips have got to move, right? Somebody's got to actually speak and spit it out. The gospel can and should be illustrated, but it must be spoken or it's not actually good news. It's just this thing that happened once. And so Francis did a lot of cool things. Chief among them, though, was telling everybody he could about Jesus and what he had done. And so it's weird that people would describe to him a quote that's so completely opposite of who he actually was. It goes to show you that in our world that we tend to you know, spread things that we want to be true a lot faster and further than the things that actually are true. Have you experienced this in our world? Yeah. But I got a fourth thing for you this morning. Fourth misconception, despite the fact that your mommy always told you to put a hat on in the winter, body heat does not escape the fastest through your head. Just doesn't. If you're cold, put a hat on. That's what my mommy always told me. Don't go outside without a winter hat. In fact, she still calls to ask if I have enough. I'm not saying that you shouldn't wear a hat in the winter. Wearing a hat is a very, very good thing. This southern boy who moved to the Great White North has a collection of them, and he, th- he thinks they're kind of awesome. All right? I've got a gray one, and a black one, and a yellow one. That's my favorite. All right, So I love winter hats. They're a good thing to have. But the myth gets thrown around all the time that body heat escapes the fastest through your head, and that's just simply not true not even a little bit. You do lose body heat through your head, it's just nowhere near the fastest. And if you don't believe me, I've got a little exercise for you. In a couple of months, unfortunately it's only a couple of months, when winter gets here, all right, we've got a little scientific experiment to try. Day one, go outside without a winter hat on and report your findings. Day two, put a winter hat on but go outside wearing nothing else and report your findings. How do you think it's gonna go? Yes, body heat escapes through your head, but you'll learn really quick where it escapes the fastest, (laughs) right? It won't be a challenge for you. You will know. So there are all kinds of misconceptions out in our world, but the reality is that a lot of times there are significant misconceptions inside the church too, right? And so there are a lot of things that people either attribute to the Bible that are either not there at all or or are there but are misquoted and misrepresented, misapplied as something that we we would call a proof text. And we've been learning throughout the course of this series that... that a proof text is when you make something mean something else by taking it out of its original context. When you take something out of its immediate surroundings in the Bible and kind of reframe it as something that it was never intended to be, something that it's not. Now, this is sometimes done intentionally by people who are mean, by people who are trying to undermine God's Word and trying to undermine the church. And so sometimes just a meany old, McMean face is doing something evil to the Bible. But most of the time, it's actually unintentional. It's just something gets said in a certain context, and it didn't really actually fit that context, and then people who don't know their Bibles well go, oh, that sounds nice, and they repeat it, and it gets repeated again, and it gets repeated again. It's just, honestly, a lot of times just a laziness and a failure to read our Bibles well, whether it's on purpose or not. Whether it was done intentionally by Meany McMeanface, or just somebody who doesn't read as much Bible as they should, the result is always the same. It's misinformation. God's word is maligned and misrepresented. And if we're going to be a people who worship and follow a God who calls himself the truth, that's a problem, right? And so what we want to do this little series just for a summer is have a little fun with taking the most egregious examples of proof texting in our Christian subculture and just in a loving and lighthearted way go, you keep using that verse. But I don't think that means what you think that means. Sound good? Who's our offender this week? Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Say hello to the prayer meeting verse. Right? Right? Words from Jesus himself. We got some red letters today, guys. It's a good day. Like those other things, that's just from Paul and a psalm. Jesus said this, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So if you want to have a little bit of a spiritual authority to your group of friends getting together for some prayer and fellowship, if you want to feel a little bit better about only a couple of people showing up to your event that you planned, Matthew has got a verse for you. Also, Matthew 18, 20 is a good verse to keep in your back pocket the next time that you're asked to pray in front of other people and you're not sure where to go from there, right? It's a good catch-all verse because, I mean, come on, it talks about Jesus. It talks about Jesus being near. And that's a good thing, right? Like, don't we want Jesus to be near? Jesus being present is a good thing. Like, does anybody want to argue with the claim that Jesus showing up to your gathering of church people is a good thing? Now, some of you, like, have some other things going on in your life that you don't want him to show up at, but I'll talk about that another time. But when you're doing the church thing, don't you want Jesus to show up? Don't you want Jesus to be present among you? And it seems, well, it seems here that he, that he promises exactly that. I don't know about you, but that's That's pretty exciting. But, um, there there is a question though. See, is it, is it two or three? Like, what's the threshold to get him to show up? Is it two or three? If I'm wanting to Jesus, wanting to have Jesus show up for my thing, do I need to get two people together or three people together? Is it a moving target? Is it sometimes two and then sometimes three? Is it? Is it? Should I really aim for three? Because it's kind of sometimes work with two people to get Jesus to show up, but I should really aim for three people in order to be safe and to have all my bases covered? Like, I really want Jesus to show up for my thing. You know what? We'll just go with three. It may work with two, but really, 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 I should aim at three because I definitely want Jesus to be there. We should never leave something as awesome and amazing as the presence of Jesus up to mere chance, right? We should definitely go with three. Three it is. It could work with two, but... Better safe than sorry. Three. Is the sarcasm starting to starting to clue you in that there's a major problem with this logic? What about when you're all by yourself? Is Jesus not with you then? Is he hanging out waiting around on the sidelines until you get a buddy to come hang out with you? The omnipresent God of creation who promised to send His Spirit to dwell in you. Is he, is he just waiting for you to finally get over that hump of getting a friend? Do I need to get a buddy to help me activate my presence of Jesus' blessing? And do we get Dakota rings if we team up? So Matthew 18, 20. Well, it gets quoted in all kinds of scenarios, but usually it's an attempt to justify and give an official religious air to a small group of people, whether that's a prayer gathering or honestly something that's crept up in just the last you know, decade or so. It, it hasn't been around forever, but it seems to be applied this way lately. People looking to get out of being a part of a regular church gathering and calling whatever activity they prefer to do a church gathering. Have you experienced this before? Said this before? maybe the golf course or the coffee shop or a family outing. I don't need all that structure in my life where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Right? And in the Christian subculture that we've created for ourselves, well, Jesus' words here become a a tool that we use to really exalt ourselves. Either by believing that we carry more authority than we actually do and actually belongs to us, or or by using it as a license to justify things that the Bible would point to as disobedient. But you don't have to take my words for it. Just like in previous weeks, I did another quick Google search. Had some fun on Google Images and put some weird things in my Amazon browsing history. I found a couple of things. And first up are the posters. Because every good proof text verse needs a poster, right? Um, personally, I'm a fan of this one right here. It's uh, 22.99 For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Wouldn't that look nice in our fellowship hall? Like, think about it. Our, 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 our Wednesday night suppers are about to start back up in September. We got everybody in the room. We're going to do Bible studies and prayer meetings later. And then we're going to gather for a meal. Wouldn't that look so nice in our fellowship hall? I mean... We want to send a message on Wednesday nights that we're gathering together in his name, don't we? This would be a great addition of our time together. I think it would help us drive the point home. Now, gathering around a meal, though, is pretty good. But most of the time, most of the time, Matthew eighteen twenty is used in a prayer meeting setting. So in order to prepare ourselves, I've been giving it some thought. And I think that I should put some things on the 2020 pastor's reading list. You ready? Number one up, first up, is the power of praying together. It's it's for $3.99 on eBay, so you don't have to pay the full $15 on Amazon. It's a good deal. All right? The power of praying together. The thesis of this book is saying that getting a buddy or two to pray with you, the same thing that you're praying, essentially corners God into giving you what you want. We've talked about this before, right? How does the cornering God part of the equation ever work? Think, think it's going to be successful? But book number two is a little more lighthearted. When two or more are gathered, um, this is way more lighthearted. The author himself describes, the, collect this, uh, describes this book. It's a little blurb on the back. He describes it as a collection of inspiring quotes that made him have a good day. And he just wanted to pass along the blessing. So he grouped a bunch of quotes together, some from the Bible, some from other places, and he wanted to bless us and give us the same kind of good day that he had. And this was one of the ones that made the cuts. What a blessing. And we get to pay him $15.99 a copy for the opportunity. But book number three is back to the heavy lumber and will make you think. Where two or more are gathered by Ellie Herald, um, this book literally is making the argument. Actually, in physical paper form, is making the argument that all established churches should die and that everyone should go their separate ways and just form little fellowship communities of their own design. Throw away any form of leadership, throw away any form of programming, because those things are nothing more than trinkets of a bygone era that we shouldn't hang on to anymore. And we should all just go and do whatever makes us the happiest with a couple of other people who think the same. That's literally the argument of this book. The publisher's synopsis, the paragraph down at the bottom, starts out by saying, and I quote, have you outgrown your childhood religion? And so without a doubt, the, this book postures itself as the fulfillment of Christian maturity by calling us to leave the places where you're asked to serve and asked to bend your preferences for the good of others and instead go chase after what's satisfying for you. Literally, that's the argument of this book. I really wish I was making that up. But, but listen, now that we've done our research and we've prepared, we can step out and use our new verse. And so first up, to take the advice of this book, we can have a date in a meadow or where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That counts according to the logic of this book. Dates in meadow, just as a life hack, are a good thing. Usually successful, unless you don't do outdoors well. But listen, also successful is the titanic pose. I'm king of the world! Any date that involves the titanic pose is usually a good date, right? But really, though, this is more of a band of brothers kind of deal. You can go full nights at the round table there. Jesus is there, so we've got God's power on our side. Crusade away, my friend. But all of this has left me with an awkward burden. I frequently find myself in places where I have to get religious people gifts. It's kind of this weird thing that that pastors have to do. And so what do you get the religious person who already has those things? They've already got the small group of community around what they love. They've already got uh, what they think is the presence of Jesus hanging out with them. What gift could you possibly give to that person? Well, obviously you take them back to the source. You give them prayers straight from Israel. This is from an organization called Blessing Israel Together. And one of their ministries is offering to pray for even you. Now, praying for others is obviously a good thing. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, some of you have been gifted by God with that gift especially to bless the church. You Margie was up here during VBS week praying over our efforts, and I think God blessed that. That is a good good thing, but there's also a very real reason why they put Matthew 18:20 as the title of this let us pray for you page. There's a logic here that needs to be unpacked, right? It needs to be understood. Think about it. If, if having a couple of people praying the same thing that you're praying is supposed to move the needle for God, like what we learned earlier, why not get some of the holiest folks from the holiest land to do a little praying for you, right? Like, it's time to, to dip into free agency and get you some all-stars on your team. Like, that's what's going on here. This is the logic of this specific let-us-pray-for-you offer. By our powers combined, we shall have a blessing. You also have to go through their give us money first wall before you get to the enter your prayer request. So there's that. But we're just getting warmed up though. Because as always, every good proof text needs a pyramid scheme. <laughs> so if you were in California around Redondo Beach in February of this year, you could have been a part of a sales presentation by this lady who thinks that if we all just jump in together at the same time, then Jesus will bless us because obviously he's in the midst of us, right? That's what her argument is. Like, like I know these multi-level marketing things, they don't normally work. But listen, Jesus has made a promise. And so if we all commit at the same time, he's promised to be with us and bless us. And so let's all just take the plunge together. And we'll all have a little more cash in our pocket. But no matter how you feel about this stuff, one thing is definitely true. Having two or three people with you is a very good thing because that's when you get to use the HOV lane. For some reason, this also came up on the Google image search. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. And there have been times in heavy traffic where HOV lane has been the blessing of God, right? All right? right. Everybody's a winner. So make no mistake This is how our verse for the day is often used in our camp, right? It's the way it gets thrown out there. It's used as a verse that says, Jesus will bless what we're doing right now because we've got a couple of people who have all bought in. That's the context. And what we've been saying throughout this series is that if there's no distinction between us and what's outside here, uh, if, if 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 by nothing but the grace of God, we are just as capable of fallenness and blind spots. and And so if that's true, could there be a blind spot here that we're not seeing? And I think the answer is most obviously yes. What if like, what if Jesus doesn't have prayer gatherings and dates and meadows in mind when he says these words? You think maybe? So let's look at how the Bible actually frames Matthew eighteen twenty. To do so, we need to start in verse 1. So uh, we've talked about this idea before, uh, but maybe there's some new people in the room. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew is structured uh, with a purpose. Um, while big chunks of Matthew are what we would call chronological, happening in order, chronology is not Matthew's highest priority, right? Um, and so a lot of his account is really grouped together in what we would in a, like a really neat back and forth pattern. He'll talk about some things that Jesus did, and then he'll group together a bunch of things that Jesus said, and then he'll go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, All right. And so um, Matthew. Can can really be divided up into what we call five major discourses. The most common one, the one that everybody is most familiar with, is the first discourse, which is the Sermon on the Mount. All right, And so there's this big chunk of teaching, and then Jesus goes off and does something for a while, and then there's another big chunk of teaching. The fourth of those five discourses starts in Matthew 18. All right, And so it's one grouping of teaching that drives home a specific point. Okay, And so in verse 1, we read this. At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, uh, at that time, excuse me, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have, had, uh, to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this little section of Scripture, and Jesus is making insinuated threats. So awesome. Like, what do we do with that? Well, two morons, I mean disciples, walk up to Jesus and start jockeying for position, Right? We see this happen a few times in the gospel accounts. They're always trying to figure out who's number one and who's number two, who gets to sit on his right hand, who gets to sit on his left hand. So they come up to Jesus and they ask him the question, Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? They're jockeying for position. And Jesus immediately goes into object lesson mode. He grabs a kid and he says, hey, you see this kid? Unless you become like this kid, you will never See the kingdom. And a lot of words have been spilled over, you know, debating what exactly Jesus means right there. But Jesus actually tells us explicitly what he means in verse 4. He's talking about humility, right? Right? Become humble like this kid. These guys are they're looking to gain something. They're looking to position themselves with this question. And Jesus chops their legs out from under them in an instant. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. And if you don't, you won't make it either. And then in verses 5 and 6, Jesus well, he says something that's just as confused and just as misquoted as anything else we've looked at in this series. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, dot, 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 dot. All right, so I guess we've got a two-for-one sale for you today. We can knock out a second proof text for the price of one. Jesus just said, just said that his disciples are ones who have humbled themselves like children. Do you think he just changed the subject here? He's not talking about actual children right now. He's talking about who? Who? his disciples who have humbled themselves. In fact, he, he's saying that his disciples are the ones who have humbled himself. And then he goes into the next piece. He pointed to a kid and said that his disciples are those who have become like kids. And he goes on to, to speaking about those who are humbled like kids. He's still not talking about actual kids here. So does that mean that well, Jesus doesn't like kids? No, of course he does. Jesus loves kids. He loves them better than anyone in this room ever could. Does that mean that Kids aren't included in the humble disciples of his kingdom? No, they very much can be. In fact, it may actually be easier for them because they bring less baggage, bring a lot less drama. And personally, this is just my opinion, I think hanging millstones around the neck of people who hurt kids sounds like a pretty fair way to do things. But Jesus isn't talking about kids here, he's talking about the vulnerability of those who have humbled themselves like kids. And Jesus promises to protect his sheep. So much so that the millstone option seems like a far better plan for the accused on the day of judgment. Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is defined by humility. Defined by it. By by the humility of Jesus and by the reciprocated humility of his people. But look what happens next. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 9 And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. All right. So we have another passage of Scripture that probably is familiar to a lot of people. Um, So familiar, in fact, that it's it's actually dangerous. Because we have this nasty little habit of taking things that ought to cause something in us and stir something in us and just sloughing it off and glossing it over as if it's not a big deal because we know. Most commentators and preachers here will argue that, that Jesus uses hyperbole in this moment, but I'll just be real honest with you. I don't know if it is. I'm not so sure it's hyperbole. I don't, I don't think Jesus really wants you cutting off your hand and gouging out your eyes, but like, I do think he really, really wants us to understand how serious sin is. Like actually serious. And when he, I think he very much wants us to understand how terrible hell is. And does anybody know better than he does? Does anybody have a better picture and a better understanding of the severity of sin and the severity of hell than the one who created it? I think he wants us to know that it's deadly serious. What if sin? Re- what if? What if it really is? better to enter life with one hand than to enter hell with two? Is that that better? Now, to be clear, I'm not sure those actions will actually prevent sin. It's possible to gouge out both eyes and cut off both both hands and still be 100% capable of sin. That doesn't actually fix the problem. And so, technically, we're back in the category of hyperbole. I think Jesus knows that but maybe it's not an exaggeration as much as it is an eye-opener. Good hyperbole is meant to open your eyes to something that you're not currently seeing. And if our culture could be fairly accused of anything, it could be fairly accused of a lot of things, but chief among them is our flippant understanding of sin and its consequences. At the end of the day, At the end of the day, I joyfully pursue sin because I love it, and I'm blind to just how terribly it's harming me. That's Jesus' point. And Jesus goes here, hey man, listen, one-handed men entering life is better than the alternative. The king of all righteousness, the one who rules over hell itself, believes that sin is deadly serious. It will harm you now, it will harm you forever. And so he goes, Hey, here's an idea. How about we all see this with eternal eyes and act like it's as big a deal as it actually is? That's Jesus' point. But look what he says next in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, by the way, little ones, have we we changed context? Who's he still talking about? Talking about? okay so remember Matthew is aiming at something here in the way he's structuring his account so far we've seen that humility is a defining characteristic of Jesus's kingdom and we've seen that sin is deadly serious and ought to be treated as such we got those two waypoints and, and now we see a parable about a missing sheep and the general idea here is that The general idea here is that those who do fall away will be pursued. That's what he's saying. He'll leave the 99 and he'll go after the one. Without qualifier, Jesus loves the one who strays. He wants them. He seeks them. He will find them. The heavens rejoice at one lost sheep who has returned home. God gets the glory for that and oh yeah, the sheep is safe again. That's the point of his parable. The story that Matthew is telling here now through these three pieces, three sections of Scripture. The picture that he's painting is that the culture of Jesus' kingdom is one of humility and repentance. Defining traits of his kingdom. It's a, it's a culture where the, where the lost are pursued and celebrated upon their return. And it's it's in this cultural discourse taking shape that we can begin speaking about our verse for the morning. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. All right, so you have a, a culture of humility. You have a culture of counting sin as deadly serious, and you have a culture of lovingly pursuing those who are straying. Those three things all in tandem. And now, Jesus assumes here that sinners hanging out for any length of time with other sinners is going to cause some sparks every once in a while. There will be sin. And so, so he says, in that moment, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately and address it. And even though this sounds like a really super common sense thing for every mature person in the room. It's a completely otherworldly idea because the world doesn't actually work that way. It doesn't ever do this. For some of you, you are absolutely terrified of going and addressing an issue head on. Am I wrong? Absolutely terrified. You are the one we're talking about when we start like rephrasing that ostrich myth. It's the scariest thing you could ever imagine. And so instead of addressing it, what do you do? You avoid the person. You avoid maybe even the place that they hang out. And as you do, what always happens? You grow more and more bitter about the thing, right? Isn't that true? You grow more and more bitter by the minute. You keep turning their failure over and over again in your head, reframing how you would have done things better the next time around, the things that you would have said that would have shut the situation down and left you walking away victorious and them feeling defeated. Am I wrong? Some of you might even take it a step further and get all passive-aggressive about it, drop little hints here and there, but never actually the whole thing. But either way, you you forever see that person as an enemy. Absolutely nothing they say or do could ever be right to you because don't you know what they've done? Everything's been tainted by their failure. And so you just sit there and you stew in it and you distance yourself from them and from good things. And no one better ever mention that person to you in a positive way because they don't know that person like I know that person. Right? Some of y'all look a little nervous right now. (laughs) But that's only half of the people in the world. The other half take the opposite approach. If somebody were to ever wrong you, you still don't go to them privately to address the issue, you blast them for it publicly. That's the distinction. You react and one-up by telling the story over and over and over again to as many people as will listen. And you do so because what you really, really want is to ruin them. Right? You want to get them worse than they got you. Have you noticed the phenomenon on social media lately? Um... All of a sudden, it's become not just acceptable, but normal to just completely tear into politicians and companies and public figures through the public forums on social media rather than the private direct messaging options, which are also available, equally available. All right? And just um for instance, if UPS hasn't gotten your package to you as fast as you wanted, you you don't contact them and ask them for an update, you send an angry tweet that everybody can see. Because you want them to feel the pain of knowing that everybody saw how upset you were with them, right? That's how it works. The evil corporation must die. doesn't matter that there was a snowstorm in Indianapolis that slowed all the packages down. The evil corporation must die. They must pay for their their crime. But you don't understand, Stephen, if I don't do it publicly, they won't feel the pressure to change anything, to do anything about my problem. Okay, maybe. But you're basically being the anti-Jesus right now. So how about we stop that? You've got an eternal plan, whereas they don't. and uh, It's a bad look. And this is something that I personally have had to repent of at times. I I tend to be in this category. For those of us in this camp, our knee-jerk reaction was just, just be a jerk. And when someone has wronged us, instead of bottling it up and getting bitter, we, we just explode all over everyone and everything. Does that ever, ever make the problem better? Not even a little bit, right? See, the timid, they feed on a sinful but imagined animosity, but at least it's mostly in their head. Like, like we immediately and sinfully start looking for ways to hurt the other person worse than they hurt us. Chaos ensues. And Jesus' words here are really, really simple. Really, really simple. In a, in a culture of humility, and in a culture that considers sin to be deadly serious, in a culture that pursues the straying and celebrates their return. Jesus says that in this situation, uh, uh that in this situation, you need to go to your brother privately and try to work it out. That's what he says. And if you're able to work it out, then what happens? He says then you've gained your brother. You have a stronger bond than before everything started. You have a stronger, healthier, more Christ-like relationship than before the sin happened. You've gained your brother. But sure, burning bridges through attack or internal hatred is a much better option, right? It's more comfortable for us, but, well, a lot of fires everywhere. Do you see the otherworldliness of Jesus and his kingdom here? Our natural instinct is not to do what he's prescribing here, but man, it works. It actually affects things for good. How often does he prove his kingdom to be, to be better than anything we ever cook up for ourselves? But look what Jesus says next. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, so you went to your brother, you, you sought them out, you failed though. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be uh, established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is another one of those often misunderstood uh, Bible verses. So I guess we have a three for one sale today. Uh, The the witnesses here are not, uh, don't think modern courtroom. They're not witnesses to the offense. They're witnesses to the confrontation. All right. Their job is to make sure that you, the two of you, are working things out in a Christ-like manner. In humility and counting sin as serious and pursuing the stray. That's that's what their job is. But notice the elevation here. It goes from you and your offender to you and your offender plus a couple of extras. Right? There's a little bit of elevation. You've, you've begun to fold in a couple more people into this situation. In our context, that could be just about anybody here. Uh, maybe it's a common family member, or it's a mutual friend, or a small group leader, or maybe your deacon. deacon. Right? This is the next step of, alright, we weren't able to work it out between us, and so let's bring in another layer. That's what's going on here. And Jesus says if you can't work it out between the two of you, bring in another layer of help. Someone who can help you navigate the issue with my kingdom culture in view. This isn't backup. It's not somebody in your corner going, yeah, you get them. This is mutual love and a mutual servanthood. And through this act, humility is seen and Maybe you can actually get somewhere. Look at verse 17, though. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So if after humbly pursuing the other person and lovingly calling them to repentance, because, you know, sin is serious, right? We're, we're assuming this. If if after personally addressing it in a couple of different ways, Jesus says, bring the issue to the church. Now, two mature believers who love Jesus and love each other should probably in that moment figure out a way to, to sort things out. Somebody needs to go, you're right, I was wrong. Somebody needs to go, you're right, I, we'll do it your way. And so it's incredibly rare that someone would ever make it to this level, but well, sometimes that happens. And if they do, well, if they do, if the person is walking in sin, and they really just don't care, Well, then there's actually a deeper issue at play here, isn't there? See, we're not talking about some kind of fault between two people. We're talking about an unrepentant heart by this point. And so again, Jesus prescribes an elevation in the amount of people involved. You're not looking to harm them. You're not looking to get something out of them. In love and concern and care for them, you're Calling in more and more people, more and more layers to help. And Jesus says here, Jesus says here that if after all of these steps, after all of these people lovingly calling a sinner to repentance, they still don't want to listen, Jesus says that it's the church's job in that moment to, to treat them as someone who doesn't know the gospel. He's, he calls them a, a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, outsiders. Outsiders. But isn't that kind of mean? Like you're really going really to kick somebody out because they, they didn't want to do what you wanted them to? Well, they don't seem to show any of the characteristics of someone who belongs to Jesus' kingdom, do they? His kingdom is defined by Humility. And it's defined by considering sin to be deadly serious. And it's defined by pursuing those who are straying. And if none of those are markers in their life, are they really a part of the kingdom? Allowing them to continue to believe that everything is okay is what if that's less loving? What if that's more dangerous? than the wake-up call. It's better to enter life with one hand instead of entering hell with two, right? The act of surgery is not something you should ever, ever, ever do on a healthy body. It's violent. It causes damage. It's a terrible idea to cut into yourself. To do that without need is a pretty sure indicator of a mental issue. But then there's also things called tumors, right? And the tumor will hurt you far worse than the surgery ever would. And sometimes it's really, really necessary to cut the tumor out, right? Acting like the tumor isn't there isn't, or isn't really a big deal because the surgery is scary, that's not a better option. That's an unwise thing to do and will ultimately harm you. That violent and grave damage in that moment will actually serve to heal the body rather than make it worse. It's necessary for the body to become healthy. And so Jesus says here in Matthew 18, if someone refuses over and over and over again to listen, if they have no desire to walk in humility, no desire to walk in repentance, then surgery is actually necessary. It's just cut it out. But look what he says in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, or, sorry, whatever you bind in on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, verse 19. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And here's where our theme verse for the morning comes in. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so Jesus says here that when you pursue your brother in love and pursue your brother with concern for them, when you count sin as deadly serious and exhaust your efforts to pursue them and to return them home, when it finally gets to the point that there's nothing left that can be done and the church must act to remove them from fellowship, Jesus says, when it finally comes to that point, he says, "I'm here for you and." I I'm backing your play. That's what he says. When you're gathered in my name, and my name carries some cultural identities. When you're gathered in my name, my people are defined in a certain way. And when you gather in my name, I am with you. I Listen, I know it's hard. I'm here. I know it's painful. I'm the great comforter. I know that you wish that there was another way. Me too. But I drank the cup. I did what was necessary. I'm here. Guys, I don't think Matthew 18, 20 means what people who quote it during prayer meetings and use it to justify their Sunday mornings out on the golf course think it means. Not even a little. Follower of Jesus, God is near he dwells in you in you you don't need to get a group of your friends together and pray the same thing in order to change his mind about something you are his child and he delights in you to think otherwise is a completely unbiblical concept He calls each and every one of us to humility. He calls each and every one of us to repentance before him. He calls calls us to love those in our faith family with a self-emptying love that wants best for our brothers and sisters and pursues them when they stray. For their good we chase. And Jesus promises to be with us and support us when we pursue that together. We don't have time to read it this morning, but the next thing out of Jesus' mouth in verse 21 extends that cultural identity another step by talking about our forgiveness and how we forgive others who finally come home. Because we've received grace, we show grace. Because we receive forgiveness through repentance, we show forgiveness through repentance. And so the question that must be asked this morning is actually pretty simple. Have you experienced the otherworldly forgiveness of King Jesus? A forgiveness that humbles you before him. A forgiveness that breaks the stranglehold of sin in your heart and life. A forgiveness, hear me, that lovingly pursued you when you were astray. Have you experienced that forgiveness? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to Him today, and to meet Him. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are rightly separated from God, but the Bible also teaches that God is willing to do something about that separation. The eternal Son, Jesus, came and lived a sinless life, living perfectly obedient to the Father. Perfectly obedient. And He died on the cross as a substitute. He didn't deserve to die. He was innocent. But died as a substitute To pay the debt of the sin that we owe. The Bible says that He bought you with a price. And He now calls you to repentance and to faith. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be an opportunity for people to respond. Listen, Romans 10 tells us that those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead will be saved. That's a way you can respond today. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, you can respond to God's Word too. I think you do that by pressing into God this morning. Repent of sin and lean into His goodness. Listen, maybe there's someone in your life that needs to be pursued in love. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe there's somebody who's straying or or far gone and they need to be pursued In love and concern for them. But listen, if you try to go do that before you're walking in humility, it's going to go bad. It's going to go real bad. Now, some would take that to mean that I should get all my affairs in order and then go, no. No, Jesus drank the cup. Do yourself, don't use yourself as an excuse to, to not love your brother. Hurry up and fix your junk and go. Do both. love them enough to give some urgency to your own issues and handling your own business so you can go after them. Because you know what we're aiming for here? All day, every day? A culture of humility. A culture of counting sin as deadly serious. And a culture of pursuing those who are straying because otherwise we don't bear the marks of our king. So that's who we want to be. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. There'll be some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you don't know Jesus yet and want to meet him this morning, you can do that on your own. But listen, I'm also going to be down here. I'd love to walk you through what that means. But let's all respond to God's word today. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the book of Matthew. Thank you for being a God who came near. You did not save us to neutrality. You saved us to life in your name. We get to gather together and try to act like your church. And we're fallen, we're broken, we're full of sin, we're full of uh, our own junk. And as, as the world beats up on and our own hearts rebel against you, People come and go, but God, you've called us to pursue the one. You've called us to chase. It may not always work out the way we hope, but we long to be obedient to your call. And God, we know that when we walk in obedience, that you'll be with us as the one who walked in obedience first. You are good. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them today? Save people by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.